Hey, this is Eric Benson, the host of Climify, a podcast that connects design educators with climate experts to help bring more climate safe projects into our design classrooms. Through my conversations with these climate leaders, I hope to help you Climify your syllabi and to create the next generation of climate designers. In fact, at the end of each program, my guest co-creates a design assignment for you to bring into your classroom for your students. This season, we are talking to women leading the way in climate action through the lens of each of the drawdown.org solution sectors. You can tune in to Climify anywhere you get your podcasts or directly at climatedesigners.org forward slash edu forward slash climify. And we'd love if you join in the conversation on Instagram or LinkedIn at Climify Podcast. This is Incomplete Design History, a podcast that explores overlooked and ignored topics in graphic design history. It is our goal to deepen and expand the knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of design history. Because history is messy. It's incomplete. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Mandy Horton. It was Kate Osment, professor of English at Cal Poly Pomona, who said the history of the book is still largely defined as a male homosocial environment where female figures are briefly mentioned on the margins of textual production or invisible altogether. Women have likely been involved in the design and production of books to various extents, despite their relative absence from this part of the design history canon. Even in the days of illuminated manuscripts, which were handwritten and illustrated books that were primarily created prior to the widespread use of the printing press, we can find stories and information about women authors and illuminators. Like the German abbess Hitta, who commissioned the codex that now bears her name. Or Indy, a 10th century Spanish illuminator or illustrator who thankfully signed her work. During the arts and crafts era that was so thoroughly influenced by the work and writings of William Morris, women were there too even though we don't hear much about them, if at all. In fact, during the arts and crafts movement and the private press movement that followed, there was a large influx of women in book production and design. Women were entering schools of arts and crafts in droves. Recent research on women in the suffragette movement indicates that by 1910, women made up at least one third of the staff of the Glasgow School of Art, and the modern decorative movement was largely controlled by women though women were hidden figures in book production even before that. In the history of book design, women were involved with book production on many levels. Publishing, designing, typography, printing, women were there for all of it. To quote Bookmaking on the Distaff Side, a book produced by women in 1937, ever since the days of Mrs. Gutenberg, women have been involved with the art of printing. Book design predates mass production. In many cultures, from Islamic to Jewish to Aztec, books were handmade for centuries prior to the introduction of printing presses and typography. In Europe, the production of these handmade books, often called illuminated manuscripts, is usually tied to Christianity and primarily made in monasteries, though it should be noted that both male monks and female nuns were likely the creators of these books. For women in particular, becoming a nun had a lot to offer at the time. These women were more likely to have access to education, they were not considered the property of their fathers, husbands, or brothers, 
and though they were bound to the church, this might have offered an interesting alternative for some of them. While we do not have much information about medieval book producers, and less about any women who produced them, there are a few accounts of women who were involved. Ongoing research is uncovering more and more evidence to that effect. These handmade books often had one or two columns of text that were accompanied by half-page or full-page illustrations, ornamented letters, and other decorative elements. When mass production techniques were introduced to book production, the design of books remained mostly the same. Gutenberg mimicked the design of handmade books, following existing layout conventions as much as possible. His first typeface was meant to look like the writing of scribes at the time. And the nature of letterpress technology lends itself to a structured layout of grids and columns. This might be an oversimplification, but historians often note that book design did not change radically until the British Industrial Revolution. Histories of graphic design often cite how the production quality of books declined during the Revolution, where quantity became the focus over quality, and William Morris is heralded as the great reformer of book design. While there are many other individuals who contributed to the idea of design reform, Morris is said to have inspired the private press movement more than any other. While William Morris is very familiar to the design history canon, there are aspects of this story that are not often told, including Morris's wife, Jane, and his daughter, May. Jane Burden was born in 1839 and married William Morris in 1859. Jane is said to have been a great beauty and served as a model for artists from the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. This is the extent that most histories discuss Jane Morris, attaching her value and historical significance mostly to her beauty. Jane and William were from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. She came from a relatively poor, or what is often described as a working-class family, as she was the daughter of a groom and a washerwoman. While William was from a well-to-do, middle-class family that was able to live quite comfortably on the income from family-held properties after the untimely death of his financier father. Thanks to this wealth, William Morris had the benefit of a good education. Jane did not. In fact, some characterizations of Jane described her as a neurotic invalid and too intellectually ill-equipped to appreciate her socialist designer husband. That last one may come from what has been described as a lack of love for her husband and the many affairs she apparently had throughout their relationship. Except records indicate that both Jane and William Morris were socialists and that reading and writing were favorite activities in the Morris household. It makes sense that the Morrises, Jane and William both, would eventually turn to designing books to their standards. Jane's creative work is most associated with embroidery. However, there is some evidence of her own involvement in the, quote, book arts. She was known to have created four keepsake volumes in 1880. These were handmade books that Jane designed and bound herself. Bookbinding had become a pastime for many upper-class women during this period. Even William Morris got caught up in this movement and is known to have created a few handmade books that predate the founding of the Kilmscott Press. Jane's books appear to have served as notebooks, containing sketches as well as quotes from literary works and embellished letters with illuminated initials similar to those found in medieval manuscripts. The drawings are described as a mixture of organic and geometric scrolling or ornamental designs. According to Amos, the excerpts themselves demonstrate a wide range of reading interests, as well as knowledge of several languages, suggesting Jane had a higher level of learning and indeed intelligence than some of the earlier claims about her. 
This makes those comments seem like an attack on her by historians who can't understand why a woman would not fully appreciate her husband who has been recorded in history as a genius. Her designs and illustrations tend to be more simplified than Williams, perhaps even a bit more modern in their use of economy, simplicity, and white space. Though it might be a bit too much to call her work modern, it is enough to say that she enjoyed a bit more restraint in her designs. While the existence of these books speaks volumes to Jane's interest in developing her own creative work as well as her intelligence, they are not widely regarded as important pieces of design history. Amos points out that Marion Tidcombe, author and historian, describes Jane's books as rather pathetic attempts at bookbinding. Jane and William Morris had two daughters, Jennifer and May. And while there isn't a lot of information on Jennifer, May also had creative interests and practiced design as well. She was not only a skilled embroiderer like her mother, but also designed textiles and wallpaper for her father's company and designed jewelry. May Morris appears to have been a significant figure and contributor to the arts and crafts movement. She helped to found the Women's Guild of Arts in 1907, yet her story has been largely overshadowed by that of her father. And, despite her apparently inept efforts at bookbinding, Jane seems to have had an impact on the industry of bookbinding itself and women's role in it. She was instrumental in the early careers of two celebrated bookbinders. T.J. Cobden Sanderson, born in 1840, died in 1922, and Catherine Adams, born in 1862, died in 1952, and is known to have designed at least one book cover, the cover of Wilfred Scowen Blunt's Invictulous, published in 1889. She encouraged family friend T.J. Cobden Sanderson, a barrister, to take up bookbinding, and this is where he apparently found his passion. He became a skilled bookbinder and started the Dove's Bookbindery in 1893. He would go on to found the Dove's Press along with Emery Walker in 1900, for which he would gain considerable notoriety as part of the private press movement. At the Dove's Bindery, he later employed women bookbinders, apparently not opposed to the idea of women in the profession. He even held bookbinding classes for women, mostly wealthy American women who paid £100 in advance. Catherine Adams was also a friend of the Morrises, and she would go on to become a highly regarded bookbinder who continued the work well into her 80s, though it is unclear if she was encouraged by Jane or by one of her daughters to enter the field. Catherine Adams won awards for her work and established one of the most well-respected binderies in Gloucestershire. While we shouldn't overplay Jane Morris's work and role in design history, it is important to note that she did have some apparent influence in introducing people to bookbinding, which also led to more women being brought into the field. But where does the craft of bookbinding fall? Is it a creative endeavor or utilitarian? If it's a creative work, is it art or is it design? Some examples of bookbinding might be considered one-offs and original works of art, while others are mass-produced items of design. Still, others might be viewed as functional or utilitarian and not worth noting in history at all. Part of the problem here is that traditionally, practices involving women tend to be viewed as lesser fields, which is how so many women get left out of histories of art and design. In bookbinding, the books are literally stitched together using a needle and thread which, as author Marianne Tidcombe reminds us, are traditionally women's tools. By tradition, women have long been in charge of folding, sewing, and mending the leaves of books, according to Tidcombe. 
By the 18th century, many women were employed at book binderies. In fact, women and girls were employed in large numbers folding and stitching pages, most likely because they got paid less than men, which is an unfortunate fact in the history of labor. Men often held jobs that took more skill or used heavy machinery because they paid better and were deemed men's work. Men's work was often protected by trade unions while women's were not. Women and people of color were often excluded altogether from trade unions. In the 18th and 19th centuries, there were several established women bookbinders. Many of these were likely the wives and daughters of bookbinders who took over running the business after the death of their husbands or fathers. This idea supports Martha Scottford's argument of where to find women in design history from her article, Messy History, Neat History. That is, working in the support of the family business. Jane Steele, Catherine Waghorn, and Jane Aiken were women who ran bookbinding businesses on the death of their fathers or husbands. Lorena Watkins inherited her bookbinding business from her mother, who took over the business when Watkins' father died. The London Bible binding business grew to be one of the largest in the city, with over 300 employees under Lorena's direction. Bookbinding also became a pastime for upper-class women to entertain themselves, such as with Jane Morris. Some men, such as T.J. Cobden Sanderson, felt that women had a place in bookbinding. Not only did he employ Bessie Hooley as a folder and stitcher, but he also paid her well enough to steal her away from another bookbindery. Cobden Sanderson seems to have been a bit of a feminist for his time. Cobden was his wife's surname, and when they were married, they both took on the hyphenated name Cobden Sanderson. He was a leader of the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, for which the Arts and Crafts Movement is actually named, and he insisted on using the Rule of Four, which required all exhibitors in the society catalogs to list all of the workers who contributed to a design. This rule meant that even workers who performed menial tasks were listed as contributors. Interestingly, William Morse did not support the Rule of Four. Practices like the Rule of Four are useful in tracking down women in design history who were often given these, quote, menial tasks. Additionally, the World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago in 1893 highlighted book designs and book bindings done by women in the women's building. And yet women weren't just participating in the menial tasks, such as stitching pages, but were also participating in all aspects of bookbinding, such as modeling, stamping, and tooling, usually in gold on leather-bound books. Women in the Arts and Crafts Society catalogs and in the World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago include Sarah Prideaux, Elizabeth McCall, Alice Shepard, Catherine Adams, and Sybil Pye, all of whom were recognized for their high-quality professional and creative work as bookbinders. Fewer women were noted as bookbinders during and after World War I, where presumably they were needed elsewhere. In the late 1920s, new technology would begin to replace hardbound books. The practice of designing book covers as a professional practice was an emerging field in the 1880s and 1890s. Alice Morris would start a career as a book cover designer and make a name for herself in this emerging field of design. Alice Cordelia Morse was born in 1863 in Ohio and later moved with her family to New York City. She studied at the Women's Art School at the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art, where she completed undergraduate and postgraduate studies. There were few art schools open to women in the late 1800s, and while today the Cooper Union is co-ed, in 1879, when she began her studies, the institution had a separate school for female students. 
Following the American Civil War, which left many women single or widowed without any prospects and destitute, there was an emerging interest in educating women and providing opportunities for them to support themselves. And the programs for women at the Cooper Union were part of this movement. Women who graduated from the Cooper Union at the time went on to become illustrators, book designers, engravers, designers of decorative household objects. They practiced glass decoration and interior design, as well as going on to become teachers and administrators of schools and art programs. The Cooper Union was dedicated to educating men as well as women from all classes, but especially those from working class backgrounds. The school's mission was to educate students in a way that would enable them to have a satisfying professional career that would also allow them to become financially independent. This idea links to the philosophies of the arts and crafts movement, along with rising interests in socialism at the time. Students who could not afford to pay tuition had their expenses covered by the school, and the students who needed to be employed simultaneously could attend the flexible course and lecture schedules. After graduating from the Cooper Union, Alice Morris got her start working on stained glass for Tiffany & Co., who she worked for from 1885 to 1889. The company was known to hire women, often directly from the Cooper Union, though only if the women were unmarried or widowed. Tiffany appreciated his female designers and thought they had a good eye for color and design. Morse worked for Tiffany & Co. for five years before she decided that stained glass wasn't her passion and left to pursue a career as a book cover designer. She had worked long hours for Tiffany and was able to determine her own hours as an independent book designer. Morse designed books for Scribner's, Harper's, Putnam, and Dodd and & Mead & Company, who were all leading publishers at the time. Her book covers reflect the aesthetics of both the arts and crafts and Art Nouveau or aesthetic movement, though influences of Rococo and classical eras as well as Eastern influences can be discerned from her designs. In 1893, Morris chaired the subcommittee on book covers, wood engraving, and illustration of the Board of Women Managers for the Women's Building at the World's Columbian Exposition. She exhibited 11 book covers and won a medal in recognition the highest honor of excellence at the exhibition. As chair of the subcommittee, she wrote an article on book design for the art and handicraft in the women's building of the World's Columbian Exhibition, where she describes the work of a book designer. It reads, she must be able to extract from a book its central idea and reduce through, if possible, to some tangible form permitting a conventional treatment. She must not outrage any true standards of design, yet she should be able to suggest to the casual observer in a symbolic way the contents of a volume. Women seem to have a remarkable facility for designing. Their intuitive sense of decoration, their feeling for beauty of line and harmony of color ensures them a high degree of success. It is refreshing that her writing on book designers emphasizes a woman designer rather than relying on the male default that is so commonly used. Morris gained considerable recognition in her time and was well respected for the quality of her book designs. Her work was frequently exhibited from 1889 to 1895 by the Grolier Club, founded in 1884, and the Aldine, founded in 1890, as well as the New York Architectural League. However, membership would have been limited to men in all three groups, but designs by women were featured in exhibits and women were allowed to attend those exhibitions. Today, more than 80 book cover designs have been attributed to Alice Morris. More might exist as it is difficult to identify designs that were not signed or otherwise documented. And design work from women was not always well documented historically. 
Though Alice's name was included in a few articles here and there, it was uncommon in the 1890s to name unmarried women in the press. It was considered important to respect their privacy, and this is one more reason why it is hard to track down women and their contributions throughout history. Morris's contemporaries included Margaret Armstrong and Sarah Whitman. Although both Armstrong and Whitman were very prolific book designers, they were also from wealthy backgrounds, and Morris depended on her book cover designs entirely for her livelihood. The work of Morris and Armstrong have striking similarities, which has often resulted in some of Morris's works being misattributed to Armstrong. Though she is primarily known as a book cover designer, Alice Morris also designed a few posters, which would have been used to advertise the books that she designed. In 1896, she completed a teacher training program at Pratt. It is likely that she decided to pursue her teaching certificate to ensure a steady income, and teaching was considered an appropriate career for single women at the time. She later accepted a position as a public school supervisor in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where she oversaw the elementary art and drawing programs. She directed and developed curriculum for the 30 or so elementary school teachers she supervised and went on to become the supervisor for the high school art and drawing programs. While living in Scranton, she boarded at the home of Leah Heath. It was considered unseemingly for single women to live alone, so they often lived in a family home, as Morris had done in New York, or in a boarding house, as she did with Heath. Though Morris's relationship with Heath may have been more than that. An obituary for Heath from 1912 describes Miss Alice Morris as a devoted friend and companion. Here the word companion may have been coded language to reflect a deeper relationship, but there is no way to know for certain. Morris retired from teaching in 1923 and moved back to New York City where she donated a collection of her book cover designs to the Metropolitan Museum Library. Margaret Armstrong was born on September 24, 1867, in New York City and was an active book designer from 1890 to 1940. She is an interesting juxtaposition to the story of Alice Morris because she came from a very affluent background. She was the daughter of an American diplomat and stained glass artist, Maitland Armstrong. Much like Morris, Armstrong got her start as a stained glass designer for Tiffany. Her father also had an interest in stained glass. It is important to note that throughout history, where we find women working as artists and designers, a significant number of them had a parent who was also an established artist or designer. Armstrong has been described as a very talented illustrator, in addition to being a book author, book cover designer, field collector, and botanical illustrator. Her interest in art and design was evident from an early age, as she was known to have designed menus, cards, and invitations. Armstrong's first book cover design was for Sweet William by Marguerite Bouvet, which was published in 1890. Despite her talent, she struggled to get work as a book cover designer in a field dominated by men. And it is thought that she might have signed her early work as M.N. Armstrong, using her initials in order to subvert gender bias. However, the years 1892 to 93 were groundbreaking for women book cover designers. Several important exhibitions in prominent clubs and at the World's Columbian Exhibition featured women designers and paved the way for the success they enjoyed during the next decades. Like Alice Morris, her work was exhibited at the World's Columbian Exhibition, and she would eventually be recognized as one of the most famous book cover designers in America, according to authors Brower and Meir. Her work was primarily for Scribner, and she was known to have produced some 270 book designs in her career. Her style is described as colorful with symmetrical and rhythmic designs, which often included floral motifs. 
Armstrong's sister Helen was also an illustrator, and they were known to have collaborated on some projects together. She also designed books for Black American author and poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, including Candlelight in Time and When Melindy Sings. Armstrong authored eight books, some of which became bestsellers themselves. Amy Sacker was a book designer from Boston, which had become a hub for women in book design. She trained as a designer at the Museum of Fine Arts from 1889 to 1894 under Joseph DeCamp, Joseph Lyndon Smith, and Charles Howard Walker, and received an award of excellence for her work in 1892. She made a name for herself as a book cover designer and did covers for Houghton Mifflin & Co., Little Brown, Knight, Elsie Page, and Lothrop. She was known to have developed a style that set her apart from other book designers, such as her contemporaries Alice Morse, Sarah Whitman, and Margaret Armstrong. Instead of designs made up primarily of ornamental patterns, which was fairly standard at the time and characteristic of the arts and crafts movement, she instead created covers that focused on figurative illustrations. Her unique approach has been likened to the poster style with her use of black outlines and bright, flat areas of color. Her designs were very popular indeed, so much so that they were often used for publications in foreign countries and were often even reused by publishers for different books. She was awarded a medal for her designs at the Pan-American Exposition in 1901. There were several schools founded during this time by women that taught bookbinding, illustration, and other skills that allowed women to enter what was deemed at the time a suitable occupation for them. As part of this movement to educate women, Sacker started her own school of decorative design in 1901, called the Sacker School of Design and Interior Decoration. As a side note, the term decorative has become a dirty word in design, which means surface decoration, shallow and concerned with ornament. It was vilified by the modernist movement, but also decorative and decoration has often been likened to women's work, which was not considered high or fine art. Le Cabossier and Amadie Azafant in 1918 are cited as having said, there is a hierarchy in the arts, decorative art at the bottom and the human form at the top because we are men. Amy Sacker was also a prominent member of the Society of Arts and Crafts in Boston, founded in 1897. Active members included Sarah Wyman Whitman, Julia DeWolf Addison, and Mary Creese Sears. With so many women doing the work, why are so few of them included in the histories of book design, illustration, printing, and production? The prevailing excuse is that women have not achieved the greatness of their male counterparts, and that they have not been recognized for their work, given awards, or been written about as often. But author Caroline Credo Perez of Invisible Women reminds us that women are simply not often accounted for, and that recognition of greatness is defined by male norms. There are so many women who have been left out, forgotten, or overlooked in the history of books. Helena Decay is thought to have been one of the first female professional book designers, and who no doubt paved the way for other women to have professional careers in book design. Bertha Gowdy, wife of book designer and typographer William Gowdy, worked beside William, composing and typesetting. William acknowledged Bertha in his own successful career, describing her as his beloved wife, companion, and co-worker. Anna Sipkina was a book designer in Amsterdam. Catherine Adams was a bookbinder, and the list goes on. Since this episode can't go on indefinitely, you'll find a list of women book designers on our website located on the show notes for this episode. Perhaps to truly be equitable and to recognize the greatness of the contributions of women, we need to redefine what it means to be successful. 
and remember the women who played roles both big and small in the history of graphic design. This episode was produced with the aid of a grant from the University of Central Oklahoma. Research and writing credits for this episode are from me, Mandy Horton, with additional research assistance provided by Dean Kelly, Colby Streller, and Taylor Hill. Story editing provided by Spencer Gee. Sound design and engineering by the University of Central Oklahoma Center for E-Learning and Connected Environments. Music by Christina Giacona and Patrick Conlon of Onyx Lane. If you would like to contact me about this episode or about the podcast, please email me at hello at idh.fm. That is H-E-L-L-O at idh.fm. Our website can be found at idh.fm. You can also connect with us on Instagram at Incomplete Design History. Subscribe to Incomplete Design History wherever you listen to podcasts.